ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Evan Shapiro. Many know Evan as the official unofficial cartographer of the media universe. He's also an Emmy and Peabody award-winning producer of many funny things, including Portlandia, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, Please Like Me, and more. He's also a professor at NYU and Fordham Schools of Business, as well as a co-host of the Cancel Culture podcast. He uses his insights to power his change agency, eShop, which offers partners and consumers media insight as a service. Today, we'll be having a free-ranging conversation about the media landscape, marketing, what's broken, and how Evan thinks it might be able to be fixed. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. In the opening, I said that we'd be discussing the media landscape, marketing, what's broken, and how you think it might be able to be fixed. So, you know, no pressure for you. But seriously, I appreciate your joining me for a freewheeling conversation. I read your posts on LinkedIn. And listeners, if you're not already following Evan, please do. They're really good, really insightful. And one of the things I love is you're really honest. You don't hold back. Like you, I like to have an opinion and I'm not afraid to share it. So I'd like to ask you the question that people ask me, and that is, aren't you afraid of alienating companies that might hire you? I worked inside corporate America for a great deal of time. And then I had to filter myself and censor myself in a way that didn't feel very natural to me. I still was pretty uncensored as corporate <laughs> citizens go. And, and I heard I got a decent amount of guff about that internally. And when I first started writing on LinkedIn and when I put out my newsletter, Reading War and Peace, um, and I'm also trying to collect clients who pay my bills at the mm. same time, I, I did try to weigh those things against each other. And then I found out something very interesting. The more honest and frank I was about a company, the more likely they were to reach out to me. And in many cases, and these are big companies, they wound up hiring me anyway. And not anyway, but despite or because I was frank with them, because I showed them their warts and all. And then there are the companies who read what I say about them and reject it out of hand and get angry. I got to be honest with you, I don't think those are the companies I want to work with anyway. So no. (laughs) Do you think everyone should be as uncensored to put a finer point on it? Do you think that some of the problem is that not enough people are sharing what they really think? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a piece about this on my uh, newsletter and I said the things I hear about the companies that I write about come from the people who work there. Mm. And I say, why are you not more honest? Internally, they're like, well, you know, I can't. And I do think that the industry went blind all the same way because people are very afraid to speak truth to power. And what's ironic about this is those same people wind up getting laid off anyway. Do you think that that's a problem across the board in corporate capitalist America, or do you think it's special for media, like it's extra in media? What do you think? I think it's particular in media because media does tend to hire incestuously, and Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of room for comfort for not being on the inside of the club. Not that other other industries don't do that. But it is disproportionately, I have statistics for this, you're, you're 60 times more likely to have gone to an Ivy League school 
than the rest of the American student body if you're running or in the C-suite or in the E-suite of a media company in the United States, 60 times more likely. What's Uh great about that is that's actually a really interesting segue because you went to UMass Amherst, but your LinkedIn profile says you dropped out. And so you worked the blue chip entertainment companies. Was that ever a barrier of opportunity for you? There is this kind of Jekyll and Hyde nature to corporate America media where they hire me as a change agent. And then I say, this is how you have to change. And I'm like, we didn't change. Um, <laughs> oh, no, so, don't do that. <laughs> right. So the college dropout pool guy is really attractive until I get inside. And then they really don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, they think they want this certain agent of change, this certain kind of wear sneakers and speaks truth to power person when they don't work there. And then the minute they ingest them into the club, they reject them like a virus. And that is true pretty real large. Look at Jason Keelar's experience at Warner Media. Look at, I mean, we can go, we can go across the spectrum of people who definitely are disruptive to the ecosystems where they exist. And then the second that that disruption becomes uncomfortable for the people at the top, personally uncomfortable, they, they make change. Mm-hmm. And so there is this, I, I want it, but I don't real dichotomy. This also doubles down kind of in the consultant economy. I'm listened to far more that I now that I don't work for anybody than whenever I worked for someone. So there is this real need for companies, organizations to have outsiders tell them what to do rather than listen to the people who are saying oftentimes the same exact thing who work there. Well, that's the old saw about consultants. They borrow your watch to tell you the time. You know, right. That's, that's, well, I don't tend to do that. But, well, I mean, but, but I'm uh, just saying that that there are there are people. Obviously, I'm not saying that you're you're doing that, but there is there are pockets yeah. of knowledge that are not accessed. Right, and and I've oftentimes heard, "Can you tell our boss this?" Right, because and, he'll listen and, because he's paying right. you extra. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to be blunt, I've spent a good deal of time creating myself as an expert, and it's much easier to listen to someone who is recognized by the industry as an expert rather than somebody who lives inside your company and nobody knows. So I do understand the mentality, but on the Mm -hmm. other hand, it's a shame that A, highly paid employees with years of experience are not being listened to by their corporate bosses at a lot of these companies, then B, that when they do have the courage to speak truth to power, they're not, it's just they're ignored very often. Right. Well, somewhat related to this is you wrote a piece on LinkedIn about personal branding and you encourage people, their personal brand is larger than their bio and that it can be very powerful. And you talked about crafting yourself as an expert. So what does personal branding mean in a practical, tactical way? What does that mean? Like, how do you get from I'm an employee in this company to I'm an expert? How do you how do you start doing that? I mean, I think the last few years has proven that if you invest all of your self-worth into the title and company name on your business card, you cede all the power in your career to them. And that very often doesn't pay off because levels above your head, people are making decisions that affect your career without any interest in how it affects your career. So what what it means to me is understanding who you are, which is a big first step. It sounds easy, it sounds simple, but most people cannot articulate what they do better than anyone else. They can say, well, I manage this process or I manage this product or I manage this uh, project. 
and I do it really well, but that tons of people can say that. And so really understanding what your talent is, what your superpower is. What I like to tell people is if you can articulate the talent, your superpower, the thing that only you can do better than anyone else on the face of the earth, and boil that down into an elevator pitch, an authentic expression of who you are and what you do great. Then you can expand from there and build a brand from that. It's very hard to build a personal brand until you complete that first test. Do you believe that creating a sustainable career where you're not putting everything into that corporate entity is is that can you can you do this work, understand yourself and still work within a larger company? Yeah, I think especially if you don't limit yourself to kind of old school companies that run by old school rules. So in the world of Google and Apple and Facebook, uh, Meta and, and Amazon and NVIDIA and all these other companies that are out there in the world kind of making big disruption on a corporate level, they pursue superstars all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what my, what I talk about is when I say be the CEO of your own shit, when I talk about building your personal brand, you may have only one client for the rest of your life and it may be Apple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you may have multiple clients and you have a, a business that where, where you have customers. But what you want to do is self-contain all the energy and value in your career within your own skin so that you can sell it to the highest bidder whenever that market opens up. And so, yeah, I absolutely believe that you can be a a motherfucking ninja about your superpowers and only work for one company at a time. But if you're smart about it, you'll have multiple choices when that time comes. Right. That said, I also think at this moment in time, if you're an old white dude like myself who finds themselves on the outside looking in, it's probably likely that you're never going to get a really great high paying job again. And that's because there are very few of them that pay you what you want, what you become accustomed to. And very often these companies not only want to, but should be hiring someone other than a straight white dude. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and so like it's time for other people to have the conch. It's time for other people to have their hands on the till. The growth of female board members of Fortune 500 companies has been nil over the last 25 years. Right. There are very, very, very few diverse or female CEOs in media companies in, in the United States or across the planet. Like it's time for a changing of the guard. And so one of the best things you can do if you find yourself on the outside looking in and you have a shit ton of experience is offer it to these companies in doses where you can transact in a way that makes you a living. It's it's far more fun than right. going to the same fucking place every day. At least that's my point. <laughs> Uh, okay, now let's switch to the media, the larger media landscape. You're a media cartographer because a few years back you created a map of the media landscape and you put Amazon and Apple and Meta on the same map as more traditional media companies. Why did you decide to add them then? Do you think they should have been added earlier and you were just rectifying a problem or was that the time? What what was going on there? The, the rationale was there was this misperception of what the game that the media ecosystem was playing is. They all thought they were competing with Netflix. And what I wanted to demonstrate was, no, y'all and Netflix are competing with Apple and Amazon and Google. And when I put them on the map, I just didn't put them on the map. I put them on the map sized and scaled by the market capitalization of each one of these companies, which showed the big tech death stars astronomically larger and disproportionately more powerful than right. the traditional media players, where I include Netflix in that, in that pool. And people would say, well, that's not fair. Apple does all these other things and they're just dabbling in media. I'm like, yeah, no, that's the point. 
they're going to lose money in media to put you out of business using capital from their iPhones. And Amazon's going to do it using shopping and Google's going to use it, do, do it using search. And it, Microsoft is eventually going to do it using Office 360. So if you're not prepared to play that game, you're fucked. And that's well, right, why because I mean. they're making decisions based differently. What motivates yeah. them, it's going to be different. And so you can't, you can't predict them the same way you had been predicting previous things. Now, what's curious, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, people have been yammering on about the attention economy for a long time. And yet they hadn't thought of it this way. I'm competing with going to the park or going to a restaurant. I'm competing for all the attention. And yet, do you think they just, they said it, but they didn't operate that way? What, what was going on there? Yeah, I think it's a nice talking point for a, a panel at a conference, but I don't think they <laughs> necessarily change their business behaviors as a result of that. I mean, when John Wanamaker first said, half my marketing money is being wasted, I, the trouble is I just don't know which half, he meant the toilet. So there, there, there is this... I think collective wisdom that the the old people who run media buy into and repeat to each other all it's in Sun Valley in their vests over and over again to the point where they think they're saying wise things and then they don't look at the data and the behaviors and 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 act accordingly. Here's here's a fun fact for you: 100% of all the smartphone users on the planet Earth are controlled by two companies. Right. And we all know that the smartphone is the gateway to a tremendous amount of the value in the media ecosystem. That was not not true five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. And, and yet, well, 10 years ago was a little bit different, but five years ago, it was absolutely true. And yet none of them operated as if Apple and Google were the real competition. They acted like Netflix was the only competition. And so they're, they're just, there's, there is a tendency for industries, all industries, by the way, not just media, but major industries to go blind simultaneously the wrong way because they only drink from the same well of conventional wisdom. Right. They they don't step away from the chessboard. They only see the pieces on the chessboard. They don't see Correct. What, what's happening off on the side. And then you look at you look at a company like the New York Times, who was on death's door in 2010, and they hired Mark Thompson from the BBC, who had never run a commercial enterprise his entire life. And all he did was change everything at the company and turn it into one of the best lifestyle content bundles for the current era we're in, which I call the user-centric era. He, he changed that company in a relatively short period of time. And the nickname of that company is the old gray lady. So it is possible. It can be done. But you have to go outside the edges of your own experience and look for people who don't think and act like you. And in this case, they found an old white dude who just thought different and, and brought a whole new perspective to the company and changed them from a company that operated in print and paper to one that is purely digital and has one of the most interesting subscription lifestyle bundles in all of media. So if you can't fix media by staying as it is now, um, how? what is your prescription? Obviously, you can't then say, oh, look at what they did at the New York Times. We will do that because their problems are different. What are the signals that they should be paying attention to to craft their own solution? Well, there's two things you can do what they did at the New York Times. Not exactly the tactics, but the overall strategy, which right. is we're going we're gonna to reexamine the entire business model. We're going to reorganize the organization of the users that we know we need. We're going to hire young people who have experience in different areas. We're going to empower those people to make changes at the company without having to run everything up the organizational flagpole to the very tippy top. 
None of those things have anything to do with newspapers and prints and subscriptions and advertising. Those are organizational structural changes that every company in traditional media should be doing right now. But when I say hire 20 and 30 somethings and empower them to make changes to your company without having to run it up to the C-suite, you can hear the butts clenching. And those are the changes that are necessary. The, the real way to fix media, I mean, there, media doesn't need fixing. It's being reorganized around these big tech death stars. Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, I would argue NVIDIA will probably wind up being in that continuum as well. So those folks are already on their way to building what will be this new ecosystem for the next couple of decades. If you want to fix traditional media and have it catch up to where the puck is going, well, then you have to start operating like, hey, the New York Times, a bundle of services. New York Times is no longer a newspaper. It's a podcasting company. It's a gaming company, one of the best gaming companies in the United States. Amazon doesn't work in television. They work in a bundle of services that includes music and books and video and gaming and get this home shopping. Comcast has the ability to morph themselves into a bundle of services. They were a bundle of services, broadband, phone, and video. They're reorienting themselves around streaming video, mobile, and broadband. If they can really make this hard pivot through this new project called Zumo that they're doing with Charter and turn themselves into an Amazon-like flywheel, they have an opportunity to make it to the other side. They're one of the few traditional companies to do it. My problem with the way they operate is they do not empower 20 and 30-somethings to make changes to the company. They are very top-down driven. And all the sex scandals there over the last, I don't know, two and a half years prove that they are just not culturally built for where everything is headed. You were talking about bundles, and I'd love your reaction on the Hulu, Disney Live, ESPN bundle. It's doing quite well. It's the lowest churn in all of video subscription. I think it's, I think it's an excellent product. I think it's probably one of the best products that's pure video out there. But that's the problem with it. It's pure video. You're, you're competing against Amazon Prime, which no one cancels. And they don't cancel. They don't not cancel because the video is so awesome. They, they don't, don't cancel. cancel because they not shipping. cancel. Free shipping and the video and the audio and all the other things that you get, right? Right. That's the table stakes. So if Disney were smart, they'd buy Roblox. If Disney, Disney were smart, they'd buy Spotify. If, if Paramount Plus and Disco Brothers had any kind of vision for where everything is headed, they would get into other services that they can bundle in with their old, with their TV and offer it in a way that creates an economy of scale and an efficiency that the consumer just absolutely desires. An interview with Mary Lee Bliss around media consumption, 13 to 39-year-olds, and Paramount and Discovery were below torrenting. Yeah. In terms of where they where they right. sit, and what's really interesting there is HBO. But Spotify, actually, but Spotify, but paid Spotify probably sat near the top. Not as high as you'd think, because this huh. this cohort of people actually gets a lot of free music off YouTube. That's their number one music listening that platform. Number one. Well, there there you go. That is actually Spotify's biggest challenge. Is YouTube is probably going to lose a shit ton of money in music just putting Spotify out of this. Right. It's the OG though, right? They're they're gonna they're gonna do what they're gonna do. I mean again, you've got their Google, so they can. Do you think consistent rules of gravity or is the the real gravity the consumer and just keep putting them in the middle? Uh, I think there are rules of gravity and I think that the, the main point of them is that the user is at the center of everything. 
Um, okay. they, the user wakes up every day, looks at that one piece of glass and has the ability to cancel or subscribe to anything that they want across the entire media ecosystem, gaming, video, audio, social. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's rule number one. And then I, yeah, I do have a bunch of rules. The, the key rules are video, audio, gaming, and social are not silos. They are a bundle that the consumer sees as such. And mm-hmm. you need to, too. Subscription and advertising are not oppositional. They are uh, cohesively connected to each other, and they are not the end of the revenue continuum in the media ecosystem. You're going to have to compete directly with big tech Death Stars and work with them as well. You have absolutely um, no choice um, but to do those things. Commerce is the heartbeat of media. It always has been. They were called soap operas for, for a reason. And so if you think you're above the bottom of the funnel, get out of yourself. Commerce is going to be one of the most key elements to the media uh, ecosystem on a moving forward basis. More than one third of people under the age of 40 say they're shopping on their phone while they're watching television. Why are we not connecting these two things? Amazon is going to. And that's the game that, that, that's, that's being played right now. Your relationship with your consumers is your value. If you seed your relationship with your consumers to the big tech death stars by relying on them solely to communicate with them, you're mm. going to go out of business. But if you have a direct relationship with them, one that is very cohesive and, and community-based, the New York Times, that case study I love, they don't have 100 million subscribers. They have 10 million subscribers. But those 10 million subscribers are a cult, a very, very high average revenue per user cult. So you need to control your relationship with your consumers. And then lastly, perhaps even most importantly, because change is going to look different at every organization. It's not going to look the same at every television company or at a gaming company or at a video company or at a social company. We have too few people at the top of these media companies who look like the constituencies these media companies are most meant to serve. And I don't only mean race, color, creed, faith, gender, gender preference. I also mean economic strata. Mm. If you don't have someone in your your decision-making room in the room where it happens, who grew up too poor to afford the product you're selling, you're going to make a mistake. If you don't have someone in your room, the two-thirds of the population of planet Earth is now under the age of 40. The fastest-growing economies on the planet Earth are all on continents that aren't Europe and North America, and mm. those are all two-thirds under 40. So if right. you don't have somebody in the room who's in their 30s, at least, if not younger than that, when you're making major decisions, you're going to make major mistakes. And yes, also, it should look like the constituency you're trying to serve. You, your decision-making room should emulate the population you want to queue up for your product. If you're not doing that, you're writing your own death mark. Right. Can I go back to one of the things you said earlier about audience and that direct relationship? I agree 100% with you on that. However, question, what happens when TikTok and Instagram are the places that people go first, that this is the discovery place. A lot of commerce is actually starting to happen on TikTok. TikTok is giving Amazon a bit of run for its money in terms of searching for products as well. So what happens? Do you do you migrate them from these social platforms? What do you think the the path there is? It's a great question. And I think it really depends on who your user base is. But the key element there is they're not only using TikTok. Right. So be everywhere your user is. They're also on Instagram. They're also on Snap. They're also on YouTube. And that's where you kind of get your own Venn diagram of users, right? You get your own set of analytics on each one of these platforms. You have the ability to curate your community and gather them in places that that are meaningful to you. 
whether that's IRL. By the way, don't sleep on IRL. <laughs> People want tangible experiences desperately, desperately right now. So your event strategy, your live strategy is equally important to your TikTok strategy, to be blunt. And yes, it'll be a subset. You're not going to get everybody who's on TikTok to show up live to an event. But everybody who's on TikTok, who's a community member of yours, is going to tune into the live event and feel FOMO. <laughs> and they share that in real life event on Instagram. So you get all yeah. sorts of, you get yes. all sorts of this um, free marketing, free marketing going on. And Netflix has actually done a lot of in real life event tie-ins to yeah. the content that trends for them. What do you think is the most engaging content that you've seen over the past year? And how did you discover it? How did you find out about it? I mean, I do love TikTok. Don't get it wrong. <laughs> The stuff I see there and the com I'm a big comedy fan. So the comedy I see there is just, I think it's some of the best stuff on the planet. I just, I think it's a really inventive creator first platform. I really wish it wasn't the spyware for the Chinese government, but it is a, it is a brilliant cinematic collision of cultures that I very, very, very much appreciate. From there, I watched, I mean, I just think Apple is doing such a good job. I like, they rarely miss. Mm. Uh, like their big first, their big first miss was morning show and it's still running. But since then they've just like every show is just so fucking good. And the best example I'll give you there is drop, uh, drops of the gods, which I would not have yeah, heard of, but somebody else convinced me to watch it. So good. So good. So good. But, but that wasn't marketed at all. At all. And it at was all. really, really good. Uh, it, that's yeah. what I'm curious. I mean, so that was word of mouth for you. That's how you found out. And that was in real life word of mouth. Yeah, I was, someone was in my home talking to me in real life and they <laughs> said, you should watch this show. We were drinking wine and the show is about wine. And uh, they said, have you seen this? And I'm like, no. And then, and then like I mentioned that show to my daughter. She's like, oh yeah, you have to watch that show. I'm like, all right, well, that's two. I'll definitely watch it. And I think it, it also personifies one of the things that, I, that, that I'm finding more and more true on an ongoing basis is there, when Parasite won the Academy Award, director said, Americans are getting over that one inch wall of subtitles, I think there's this misperception that Americans don't like foreign content and yeah. that younger audiences don't like foreign content. And both are absolutely untrue. In fact, most audiences really appreciate platforms more often when there's content from around the world that they had just w otherwise would never have seen by dint of living in the country that they live in. So, And then Drops of God, which is in three different languages, Japanese, French, and English simultaneously, I think is the, is the, is the proof case of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. What do you want that's missing? Where's your white space? Discovery. The really important thing about the cable ecosystem and I having run a couple of cable channels and, and teeny tiny kids that without people accidentally stumbling through the channel guide on us, we would never have been found. Mm -hmm. Portlandia would not be a show today if we could only if we only had the resources to market it that were financial. The ability to kind of sit next to another channel and people happen upon a show, it just doesn't fucking happen anymore. Right. By the way, that's that's true in music. That's true in gaming. You keep playing the same game. You keep watching the same stuff. You keep listening to the same music that you're always listening to because the algorithm keeps feeding you what it thinks you want. And so the accidental discovery of content is really, is really a shame. And I, there's tons of, I mean, massive amounts of great content out in the world that is just lying there. This is so true. This is so true. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We zipped through it all and it was great. So thank you.
Thank you. It was great. We've reached the end of another episode of Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Next, my friend Rob Norton, the voice of our show recorder, our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.